Say, you know, I knew I should have made a left turn at Albuquerque. Just show us the light and let it flow. Bust another buckle or more. Stocks in our sight and we got to know which ones are going to catch our dough. Because we in our vibes and here we go. This train doesn't go slow-mo. Market's looking hype and we ain't going low. But we need a new lecture. Looking for the sector. Vector connector. Breakout. Shakeout. Come down selector. Yields dropping. Earnings popping. Inflation slowing. No way of knowing how it ends. Let's not pretend this battle's over. No four-leaf clover. No rabbit's foot. No lucky dice. Keep it tidy. Keep it nice. This market's tricky. Inflation's sticky. Eyes on the price. It's about progress. We're heading for the light on the Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard. The first full week of trading for the year brought some choppiness, but markets still edge higher for the week, resuming the trend from the end of 2023. The first batch of earnings reports and the last batch of inflation reports from last year brought some mixed signals from the economy and the stock market, but investors chose to look on the bright side, sending the Dow up 0.3% on the week and the S&P 500 up 1.8%. The NASDAQ was up 3.1% as investors ran back to their favorite mega cap tech stocks. More on that in a minute. But the retracement we were talking about last week did exactly what it was supposed to do. It reverted back to the trend and the trend goes up and to the right, at least for now. It was also a big week for Bitcoin and Ethereum as the SEC finally approved those spot Bitcoin ETFs we've been waiting for, but not before Wall Street's top cop had its X account hacked, or so it says. Someone might have been front-running the news on that eventual approval. What a mess. The last inflation reports from last December gave us some mixed signals. Consumer prices climbed 0.3% in December, a little hotter than forecast, as food and shelter prices remained sticky high. The final reading for the year put consumer prices up 3.4% on an annual basis, down from over 6% to start the year, but not getting closer to the Fed's 2% target. Producer prices, on the other hand, rose less than expected and were only up 0.1% on an annual basis, the slowest advance since 2020. Falling energy prices had a lot to do with that, and cheaper oil and gas has been a big driver of the disinflation narrative around the economy over the past year. As for the stock market, after that bumpy first week of the year, followed by last week's recovery, we kind of find ourselves stuck under that all-time closing high of 47.96 in the S&P 500, which was hit back in January of 2022, two years ago. We've come close, but there seems to be some resistance at the top, and that's perfectly normal. As our pal Liz Young at SoFi points out, this is the point where investors have to ask themselves whether the companies that make up the index deserve the higher prices than they did the last time we were at these levels. One of the trickiest aspects of investing is that the markets move at different times than economic data. That's just the way it is. We saw it play out last year, and it's impossible to know for sure whether the market is correctly signaling an upcoming shift in the economy. It doesn't feel like the economy is getting stronger, maybe more stable, but definitely not stronger. And that leads us directly into our big three for the week. While the overall labor market remains pretty robust and there are still 1.4 job openings for every available worker, a rise in layoffs in the tech sector is worth paying attention to. Just last week, Google announced another round of layoffs in its engineering and hardware teams. Amazon laid off staffers in its Twitch, Prime Video, and MGM Studios businesses, and Discord, the social media platform, cut 17% of its staff. According to tech layoff tracker layoffs.fyi, 46 tech companies have already announced layoffs in 2024, impacting some 7,500 workers. Those are small numbers to be sure, and a lot of those companies took on a lot of employees over the past few years. But over the past six to nine months, 
Tech companies like Google, Meta, Microsoft, Amazon, Salesforce, and more have laid off 6% to 13% of their workforces. They are slimming down as demand wanes, and they want to keep their profit margins robust because that's what investors are paying for. Which leads us to number two, that overconcentration in the stock market that investors hate to love. The weighting of the Magnificent Seven, that's Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, NVIDIA, Meta, Alphabet, and Tesla in the S&P 500, grew from 20% to 28% over the course of last year. That was the largest share for any seven companies in the index on record, bigger than the telecoms, the railroads, and big oil. Collectively, that group rose more than 100% in 2023, which powered the performance of the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ, those market-weighted indexes. While that equal-weighted index is up a respectable 24% from the October 2022 low, so many stocks have lagged the mega-cap rally, and they have the valuation discounts to show for it. As Jurian Timmer at Fidelity points out, if the Fed does start lowering rates again in March or even May as expected, market performance could finally broaden out and bring better breath with it. If those value stocks and sectors start to catch momentum, we might not need the Magnificent Seven to do all the heavy lifting again, and we could be looking at a more sustainable rally throughout the year. A lot needs to go right for that to happen. Which leads us to number three. What are CEOs freaking out about right now? Well, according to the conference board's C-suite outlook for 2024, it's a lot of the same things they were worried about last year. A recession and inflation top the list. Even though inflation has simmered quite a bit from this time last year, more than 70% of CEOs say their companies cannot handle another inflation shock should one come about. They're also worried about global instability, and for good reason. The wars in the Middle East and Ukraine are showing no signs of slowing, and there are pockets of crisis all over the planet. They're also worried about higher borrowing costs, given higher interest rates, and labor shortages. Why is inflation still so high on their list of worries? All of these other concerns, global instability, labor shortages, and high borrowing costs, threaten to feed inflation and raise the cost of doing business. The inflation narrative, my fellow passengers, is not necessarily over. Let's get set up for the week ahead, and it'll be another shortened trading week in observance of the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday here in the U.S. Come Tuesday, though, it's all about earnings as report card season goes into full swing. We'll hear from big banks to start the week with Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs set to report on Tuesday, followed by regional banks like Northern Trust, Truist, and M&T Bank reporting on Thursday. Expect to hear more of what we heard last week from Bank of America and J.P. Morgan, among others. 2023 was the peak in their net interest income, the money they make from borrowing low and lending high. As interest rates come down, their margins will shrink and that will impact their profits. The good news is that lower interest rates could spark more borrowing, broadly speaking, which could be a good sign for their balance sheets and the overall economy. We're also going to get fresh data on the U.S. housing market with building permits and housing starts for December crossing the wires. Don't expect much movement there, at least not yet, but maybe some signs of hope for the spring as those are both leading indicators of demand. And we're going to get the latest reading on consumer behavior and sentiment with the release of retail sales for December and consumer expectations for January. Are we as worried as those CEOs about a recession and inflation? We'll find out this week. We are just a couple of weeks into the new year, but it feels like we've already got about six months worth of news. We had a whiplash retracement in the stock market. We finally got the go-to approval for those spot Bitcoin ETFs we've been talking about for months. We've had some massive US Treasury bond auctions, a hotter than expected inflation print, more attacks of shipping vessels in the Red Sea as things in the Middle East intensify, the race for the White House starting to simmer with the caucuses, and any and all of these things can have market-moving consequences, or at least cloud the picture as we try to be 
effective and educated investors. But what's really a big deal or a little deal or no deal at all? Well, let's get into it with Sam Rowe, one of our favorite market watchers and commentators, and the man behind the ticker Substack, a must-read if you love great analysis. Welcome back to The Express, my friend. Thanks for having me. All right, let's play our little game here. Big deal, little deal, or no deal with some of these themes. The market retracement coming out of the gate, no Santa Claus rally, little whiplash in the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ, kind of a bounce back. Big deal, little deal, or no deal? So many people make a big deal over Santa Claus in the January barometer. What say you? Uh, I'm going to say this is a big deal. And you know I'm biased because I write a newsletter about the stock market, and uh, it's good to see the stock market going up. I think it's uh, a big deal that we're trading near you know, all-time highs again. I think that's important for confidence, especially for long-term investors who are looking to build some wealth as they think about retirement and, and savings and college and education for their kids and all that good stuff. Yeah, it's got that wealth effect, which makes people feel a little bit better, even if they don't feel so great about the economy. But the little sell-off we had to start off the year, just a little natural drawdown here? Do you think it's the the hint of something potentially worse coming up, especially if earnings don't come in strong? I hate to say anything is ever like a healthy sell-off, but after nine straight weeks of gains, I think this is uh, a good dose of reality for investors. It's very easy to you know see those streaks go on and investors or traders or, or people who don't follow this super closely I get caught up in that and decide that they're going to lever up and go all in at you know maybe the wrong time. I think a little bit of a pullback is probably healthy. As far as stuff like you know the Santa Claus rally and and some of these early technical indi- historical indicators are concerned, one thing about a lot of these indicators is maybe it's the case that historically this is not a great indicator of what's to come for the remainder of the year. But you know, who, who knows? Like nothing is ever 100% certain. One thing with the stock market though is the outlook for earnings of the underlying companies continue to look favorable. So, I think for investors things are looking pretty decent. Yeah, analysts do have low expectations for the last quarter and companies usually have a way of surpassing those. That's the little game we play. We'll go little deal on the pullback in the in the stock market as of late. And you have this great post on ticker, great years are followed by good years. Hopefully that'll be good enough for investors and it should be. Look, we don't have 24% years every year. So folks, check that. I will link to it in the show notes. Okay, we finally got the approval of the spot Bitcoin ETFs. Don't know what took so long. We have the hacked tweet uh, from the SEC's account that they say got into the hands of the wrong person who got a hold of the phone number and put out a false tweet the day before, but we knew this was going to happen. Big deal, little deal, no deal. You think this is actually going to open the floodgates for Bitcoin or just make it yet another way to access it for retail investors? I don't know if it's going to open the floodgates. I think people who were that interested in getting into Bitcoin for speculative or investing reasons or whatever have figured out a way to do so. Like They've had a decade to to sort that stuff out. I think at the margins, it might attract some new investors or traders, but I don't know if it's going to be that material in, in terms of what it does for Bitcoin's intrinsic value, whatever that might be. I'm not exactly a Bitcoin bull. I don't really quite understand what the what that intrinsic value is. I don't really get the offering. But that said, you know, I think it's great that it's becoming easier for people to be able to trade or speculate, whatever you want to call it. And as someone who does care about things like the stock market and follow things like euphoria and bubbles and, and things like that, this is probably like kind of an un- unconventional perspective. But you know, I think that by having something like Bitcoin ETFs available for people who have that speculative itch, 
you know, maybe that means less volatility at the margins for other asset classes like stocks. Yeah, we'll see. I think a bigger deal here is the fact that the SEC's X account was hacked or somebody put out the tweet at the wrong time. That's an actual bigger deal to me than the fact that we actually have spot Bitcoin ETFs. I do agree with you. Those that would want it in probably got in, hopefully got in earlier. This does make it easier though if I want to see my uh, Bitcoin or my crypto portfolio along with my 401k. So the fact that a lot of these big money managers are now open to this, Schwab reaching out today saying they're allowing uh, folks to have access to this now, of course, Fidelity, BlackRock, that's a kind of a bigger deal. We'll see what that leads to. It's capitalism too, right? Supply and demand. You know, All these places are there to serve clients and if the clients want it, then They'll provide it to them as long as it's legal, right? So um, that's capitalism at work and they'll collect fees. Yeah, and clients do want it. So that's why they exist. All right, US Treasury bond auctions, usually not something we pay a lot of attention to, but US Treasuries not uh, having a great few years here, obviously a terrible bear market for treasuries, though a little bit of a rebound lately, all this tied to inflation, all this tied to what's happening in the rate environment here. But the fact that the appetite for US treasuries, especially those long bonds, is just not what it was from Bank of Japan, People's Bank of China, some of these sovereign wealth funds, even the big hedge funds, big deal, little deal, or no deal, Sam? This is a great question. And, and there are people who are way smarter than me who can speak to this, but I'm going to go ahead and say big deal. Because interest rates, that matters to everybody, right? Whether it's you're a business trying to finance CapEx, whether you're an investor or an analyst trying to value a company and using a higher discount rate, and therefore, you know, the present value of cash flows are, are lower and therefore asset values are lower. And, you know, things to, you know, everything ranging from being able to borrow for a house or a car or, or credit card that like, I think from an interest rate perspective, I think it's a big deal. And hopefully this stuff sorts itself out. You know, I feel like every couple of months, things bubble up about concerns when it comes to demand for treasury securities. But, it, you know, historically, it seems to work out. So I'm, I'm optimistic about it. But um, it's something I think that, you know, everyone should keep an eye on. And there was definitely rumblings in 2023 about whether there was appetite for this anymore, whether the dollar would remain the big global currency. It's going to take a lot to knock the dollar, uh, the greenback off the pedestal there. And U.S. Treasury bonds still the safest, most widely held asset on planet Earth. So I feel like the, the drumbeat might be getting louder, but it's still a little deal at this point. Could become a big deal down the road. I'm also reminded of how people talk about commodity prices, right? You know, generic rule of the cure for high prices is high prices, right? Um, with treasuries, if it gets to a point where yields continue to surge, again, that's going to be attractive to somebody. Maybe it's money comes out of the stock market and creates volatility there. But, you know, I can't see demand for U.S. treasuries getting so bad that, like, we're, we're talking about, you know, interest rates that, you know, are astronomical. Agreed with that. All right, the Fed pivot. Everybody's been talking about it. You know, when's gonna, the Fed going to cut? Are they going to cut sooner? How many times are they going to cut? They've been pretty transparent here. Three cuts probably this year, quarter point each, get us down to uh, the high 4.5% range by the end of the year. But the whole pivot, when it happens, if it happens, how big is it going to happen? Big deal, little deal, no deal. Obviously a big deal to the stock market, but are we making too big of a deal of it within the our confines of financial media and the echo chamber of FinTwit? I think we absolutely making too big a deal of it. And I'm going to go as far as to say this, this is not a big deal at all. This is no deal, Caleb. I think it was a, it was a much bigger deal when we were talking about 25 basis point hikes when we were at 0%. 
I think it was a much bigger deal when we're talking about 50 basis point hikes when we're at 1%. And what we're now at like five and a quarter or five and a half or whatever. And it's like this question about, are we going to cut? Are we going to hold? Are we going to do whatever? We've had high Fed funds rate for over a year now. And, you know, the markets, the economy seems to be working just fine. Now, as far as whether or not they actually pivot and begin to cut or hold or whatever, I think that's really not the right question. The question is going to be, if they don't cut, why are they not cutting as they suggested in their, their dot plots, right? Is it possible that the economy heats up more than they, they initially modeled? Then yeah, maybe that's a good reason to not cut because they're concerned that inflation is going to be bubbling up again. From an investor perspective, from an economic perspective, that's not exactly the worst thing in the world that like, the economy isn't falling apart. Because remember, a lot of these assumptions when it comes to the Fed pivot, in addition to inflation cooling, is also tied to the idea that the economy is also cooling, that growth is slowing and decelerating, and a lot of people have recessions on their mind. So maybe the Fed doesn't pivot because the economy is picking up. That's really not that big a deal. So I, I think the idea of a Fed pivot and all the concern about whether or not they're going to cut rates or hold, I think it's t- completely overblown. Yeah, I don't disagree there. And it, to your point, if and when the Fed cuts and by how much, you got to be wondering on how, what's going on in the economy. Is it in such bad shape that the cuts need to be deeper? They need to come sooner. A lot of folks don't realize when the Fed starts cutting rates, it's not necessarily because things are going great right now. So it may juice the stock market in the near term. That may have already happened. Not always a great thing. All right, back to investing. The active versus passive debate. You know, For years, it's been passive, zero interest rate policy, throw some money into the market, watch it grow. And now everyone's beating the drum around financial services, around active management, good time for stock pickers, find the good quality companies, you know, you need our help. And of course, you would expect that from the financial services industry, which has watched a lot of this money run into indexing and ETFs over the past decade or so. Big deal, little deal, or no deal at all, or just the industry being the industry at a time of dynamism. I think it's the industry being the industry. I'm a big proponent of passive investing and index investing and all that stuff. But hey, listen, even I, you know, I'm interested in where there might be some alpha. So, you know, I don't think it's necessarily one thing or the other. I think, you know, investors can do sort of this core satellite approach where, you know, maybe you have most of your equity portfolio passively invested, but you have a taste of active. Um, and it's also, you know, a reflection of, you know, capitalism and options and all this kind of stuff where give people the option and opportunity to try to figure out ways to to beat the market. And some of these, you know, asset managers and money managers are able to do that. So unfortunately, the statistics tell you that it's incredibly difficult to do so. And there are lots of great studies that have been coming out in the past couple of years. And, you know, big investors will tell you this, that, you know, when we're talking about average returns, when we're talking about the indexes and the S&P 500 returns, These are not 50-50 shots that you pick the stocks that beat the markets. The stuff that drives the bulk of long-term returns when it comes to things like the S&P 500, the bulk of those returns are driven by a very small percentage of stocks. So I think that the conversation is getting more sophisticated and people are starting to understand that it's not as simple as throwing darts at a, a wall with stock picks on it. But that said, I think this will be a debate that continues because, you know, as long as people want to build wealth faster than, than what you can, and as far as the market averages are concerned, there will always be demand for, for active management. 
Yeah. And we need some superstar fund managers to get onto the cover of Barron's and some of our favorite magazines. Feels like it's been a minute there. So I also feel like it's the industry being the industry, not a big deal for us individual investors out there. Choose your flavor. Do as Sam suggests also index, but also have some money on the side for active management or your own active portfolio. So you're learning all the time. All right, let's get into home affordability and the housing market. Home affordability is just getting out of control here. Median prices is an all, at an all-time high. You have, still have high interest rates. People can't get into that first home. Sellers don't want to sell because they have to go out and get a higher mortgage. Renters are just paying higher and higher rent because people are being squeezed into the rental market here. Big deal, little deal, no deal at all. Bigger deal for younger people trying to get into the housing market. How do you see it? Yeah, I, I think it's that last point. I think it's a big deal with a couple of different perspectives, right? Like if you're a younger person trying to buy a home now, um, it's a nightmare. There's very little supply, home prices are very high and mortgage rates are at you know historically high levels. Um, so yeah, it, it's a nightmare for folks who you know weren't able to take advantage of what you know we saw in, in the recent past. And yeah, of, of course, if, if people are trying to move, they feel trapped in. I don't really actually care for that characterization, this whole idea that, oh my God, it's such a problem that you know I got such a low mortgage rate and bought you know a house at such a great value. There's two sides to the story, and, and the thing about most of the housing market is it's not big, you know, gigantic evil corporations that are just churning out houses. Most of the the transactions that happen in the housing market are from other existing homeowners. So sure, home prices are up and mortgage prices are up, but you know the people who aren't exactly hurting here are the ones who are the many, 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 many homeowners, both people who have mortgages and people who own their homes outright. So there are winners and losers. And the net effect of that, you know, it's I'm sure there's better math out there than what I have. But everyone I talk to who, you know, maybe it's because I'm a little bit older, people generally seem okay and they're thrilled that they were able to lock in a low mortgage rate and buy home prices when they were a little bit lower than where they were. So all those people are very happy. It's all the people who, of course, like you said, at the younger end of the spectrum who had a plan, who set up a budget and you know are finding that they're going to have to wait a couple of years before pulling that trigger. Yeah. And get started on building their American dream. Big theme for us at the end of last year. All right. Let's talk about the presidential race, not who's going to win, who's not, but just the chaos that we know is going to ensue because of it usually doesn't affect the stock market until, unless and until you have some realization of what's going to happen. And even then, stock market does pretty much the same, whether a Democrat or Republicans in office, also depending on what the structure is of the House. But big deal, little deal, or no deal for investors as we go into the real heat up of the presidential race for 2024? It's a tricky question. It's like, it's, it's one of those things where you're always tending to say this time is different. But, you know, I have faith in the political processes and democratic processes and, and we'll make it through as usual. Outside of the investing world, though, I, I do get concerned about how political divisiveness, particularly in recent years, has has affected everything from sentiment to, you know, everything from how it affects minorities and women and all, all this kind of stuff. I think all that stuff is very troubling and disturbing and, and how people who used to feel good about certain things feel very uncertain. I think that's not great. So yeah, we'll see how it unfolds. But, you know, I, I hope things from a sentiment perspective, from a divisiveness perspective, you know, hopefully that stuff starts to turn around. But, you know, usually I, I don't think you see that happening during a, an election year. Yeah, you, you will see a lot of people talking about the economy being their number one issue. Everybody says it because it's the easy thing to say, and it is the big issue for a lot of people. Generally, it's a couple other things that are really in their head that are have them thinking about 
who they want to be in the Oval Office. All right, Sam, what's not getting enough attention right now, even though we're only a couple of weeks into the year, that you think needs to be as we look ahead into the rest of 2024? I think something that's probably not getting enough attention. I, I think I've been saying this for a couple of years now. And it's always been kind of a red herring, you know, when, when people talk to me. But I think cybersecurity risk is always a big concern. And every time I bring it up, someone sends me another report about how sophisticated the cybersecurity protections and the lengths and the investments that companies make to make sure that things are airtight. All these processes, you know, I feel like it's unlikely that that something terrible will happen. But sometimes things happen. Power plant gets hacked, you know, food supply chain gets hacked, the SEC's Twitter account gets hacked. It could be anything as stupid as, you know, a social media account gets taken over or a company loses control over, you know, critical systems or something. I hope it doesn't happen. And I know companies are spending immense amounts of money and spending a lot of time protecting against this. But when you do surveys of risk, when you ask, fund managers or, or business operators or investors, or, it just never comes up. And it seems like it should be a much bigger concern than people are making it out to be. Yeah, I think you're onto something there. And hopefully nothing major will happen, but get this feeling like systems are so vulnerable. All right, let's go out on this. You know, we're a site built on our investing terms and our dictionary. You are a wordsmith, a black belt in words, especially in finance and investing. What is Sam Rowe's favorite investing term right now? This might not necessarily be an investing term yet. Something that's been coming up in the design world, the home decor, interior design world, and people are going to hate this. It's called nostalgia. It's a wordplay on nostalgia where you have a modern home, but it's peppered with these sort of vintage items or things that remind you of better times in the past or something. We're not talking about home decor and home design, but you know, I, I think there are areas where we're starting to see once again that old is new again. It sounds like people are starting to get into DVDs again after learning that you know you can buy a movie on a streaming platform and then one day that streaming platform will disappear or they'll pull that movie and people are realizing you don't actually own those those movies and so people are going back to DVDs. Just this morning we heard that Hertz the car rental company is selling EVs and, and you know increasing their stock of internal combustion engines. We're going from the future of cars back to you know old cars. And I don't know if this necessarily applies here, but kids running around with Stanley thermoses. And Van Halen t-shirts. I have 17, a 17-year-old wearing a Van Halen t-shirt. There you go. Van Halen t-shirts, you know, Nirvana shirts, champion hoodies, and all these things that were extremely popular in the 90s are coming back to Gen Z and Gen Alpha. I think there is there's some there there. And unless we get some gigantic innovation, I mean, you know, maybe we maybe AI or something like that. There's not a whole lot of new stuff that's really exciting people, but people seem to be getting excited about stuff from the 90s and early 2000s, believe it or not. So, so nostalgia, I think, will go from inter the interior design world to other areas of culture where people are weaving in nostalgic items to modern day behavior. Yeah, I love it. And we probably don't have that on Investopedia, but our partners at Better Homes and Gardens and InStyle definitely do. And we love, we love when old is new again. Look at the video game industry. It's all about Mario. Sam Rowe, the man behind the ticker, Substack, and newsletter, one of our good friends here at Investopedia. So good to have you back on The Express. Glad to be here. 
It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. And opportunity cost is our term for this week. Opportunity cost, according to the best finance and investing website on the planet, is the foregone benefit that would have been derived from an option other than the one that was chosen. It's pretty obvious. To properly evaluate opportunity costs, though, the costs and benefits of every option available must be considered and weighed against the others. The formula for deriving opportunity cost is FO over CO, where FO is the return on best foregone option over CO, the return on the chosen option. But here's an example. Assume the expected return on investment or ROI in the stock market is 10% over the next year, while the company estimates that upgrading its equipment could generate an 8% return over the same period. The opportunity cost of choosing the equipment over the stock market is 2%, that 10% minus that 8%. In other words, by investing in the business, the company would forego the opportunity to earn a higher return by investing in the stock market, at least for that first year. As profit margins tighten and the economy slows, companies, households, and individuals are going to have to consider their opportunity costs every step of the way. We're going to let Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. take us out this week since it's kind of his week. Here's the Reverend at his famous speech in front of the Lincoln Memorial on August 28th, 1963. When we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. That never gets old and we'll never forget Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Thanks for joining us this week, as always, and special thanks to Sam Rowe for climbing back aboard the Express. It's always great to get Sam's perspective. We'll link to his ticker substack and all the reports we cited on this week's show, and you'll find those in the show notes wherever you ride the Express. Keep it on track this week, and we'll talk again a little further on down the line.